welcome back to everyone who's here, everyone that's maybe listening in the future. Um, it's week seven of Germ Syllabus, so we've been doing this for a while now. It's been fun. This week's theme is affirmative consent in platform design, and it's a conversation I have been looking forward to since we rescheduled it from a few weeks back. And I always start by summarizing what we've been up to, and then I'll open the floor to our guest, who is Jane M., the lead author of Yes, Affirmative Consent as a Theoretical Framework for Understanding and Imagining Social Platforms. And then I'll open the floor for other folks in the space as well. Um, please remember, and I'll repeat this later when, if more people join, that we're recording this session. So if you speak, you consent to being recorded and reposted in our podcast episode. So just a bit about us, Germ Network is social media built to empower you, starting with a secure messenger designed just for Gen Z. We have been building our community publicly to stay accountable to everyone and to learn better what folks depend on and are missing in social, and also to share our perspective on how we're approaching social media and messaging. I'm Tessa. I was a digital literacy expert at Stanford before founding this company, and my co-founder, Brett, who is an awesome UX designer, is also here under the UX company account. And this is really an open source course, so all of the materials that we discuss are up in our Discord, and the link to our Discord is in our Twitter bio. We are here every Tuesday night through December 20th, so that's three more weeks, and we also have a voice hang in Discord on Friday afternoons, and our Discord chat threads are always open, so please do join. I won't do a week-by-week summary anymore, but I'll just review a little bit what we've been chatting about all fall. The, some major themes that have emerged over our first six sessions included centering marginalized people and especially women of color in our conception of tech ethics, thinking about how those populations haven't been served by existing platforms, and the ways that business models and leadership have incentivized away from building products that serve all users, especially marginalized users. And with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter and the total trashing of its culture lately, I think it's a more pressing time than ever to learn about what got us here so we can make healthier and more intentional choices in our future. Um, It's been feeling really non-consensual to me. I've been using the metaphor lately that Musk's takeover feels like living in an apartment building with a new landlord. You don't want to move. You don't necessarily have to move, but there's immediately a ton of construction. It's really disruptive. It's stuff that you didn't move in for. You're worried that your rent might go up. There's creepy people walking around through the halls and your neighbors are getting pushed out or they're just moving out to get ahead of impending doom. And there's just this dark feeling that like, what if we can't live here much longer? So tonight we're talking to Jane M., a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan, about her co-authored paper, Yes, Affirmative Consent as a Theoretical Framework for Understanding and Imagining Social Platforms. And I want to also name all the authors because our very first week on this title germ syllabus was all about the politics of citation and centering women of color in our conception of tech ethics. So I will just shout out all your co-authors. So Jane M., Jill Diamond, Melody Burton, Una Lee, Catherine, Catherine Mustelier, Mark Ackerman, and Eric Gilbert. I just wanted to summarize a little bit about this paper and how it came into my life. It was recommended to me last spring when I gave a presentation at Stanford's Journal of Online Trust and Safety Conference about how intersectional feminism and universal design shaped our approach to germ in terms of how we proactively look to the margins and try to anticipate bad actors and negative scenarios in our design process. And those processes really shaped a messenger design that foregrounds trust, safety, and inclusion, whether through the accessibility of our visual design, our use of end-to-end encryption to proactively protect privacy, 
or our use of double opt-in for all connections, among other things. Last week on Germ Syllabus, we were talking about abuse and harassment, and I raised that on Instagram DMs and Slack Connect and other services. DMs in particular are a major site of harassment of women, and they're rarely moderated. And I think your paper, Jane, helps us understand harassment as a lack of consent in interactions and a lack of prioritizing consensual encounters in platform design. I'll bring you in here in one second, but just for the record, I want to summarize a bit more that affirmative consent is a framework from sexual health and women's studies that says that to be truly consensual, interpersonal exchanges should be voluntary, informed, revertible, specific, and unburdensome. And what I value so much about your paper is that Even though we use the term consent sometimes in human computer interaction or HCI, it is often really superficial, like click here to consent to use cookies on this site or consent to our use of cookies on this site. And what I appreciate so much about your paper is that you go back to the feminist literature to bring so much more depth to conversations of affirmative consent so that we have a much clearer framework for explaining why, like, for example, a clunky, invasive, really coercive cookie consent dialogue is actually not truly consensual, right? It's really not voluntary. It's not really informed. It's not reversible. It's very burdensome and so forth. And I'll return to this later, but there's this incredible table in your paper that goes through multiple different common features and apps and generates ways that they could be consensual across these five parameters. And I think that table just shows so clearly how inclusivity, and in this case, feminism, is so generative for us as product designers, and it can have us designing so much more creatively and finding so many more interesting solutions that are really just like right there waiting for us to implement. And, you know, designers just leave those creative solutions on the table when they're not designing inclusively. I think sometimes folks think of inclusivity as like a burden and your paper really shows how generative it can be to think from a feminist framework. So I appreciate that so much. To open the floor to you, Jane, I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself a little bit more and just start out by telling us how you started working on this paper. Uh, Thank you, Tessa. I really appreciate it. So to briefly introduce myself, um, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan School of Information and also Computer Science and Engineering. So I work in the field of human-computer interaction, and specifically, I focus on designing and building safer social platforms by using feminist perspectives on consent. And so I'm interested in combining systems building approaches, empirical studies, and also theoretical approaches to tackle problems on social media, like all harassment that Tessa just mentioned, uh, surveillance and data ownership problems. And uh, so to kind of briefly talk about the journey up to writing this paper. So uh, I started writing this paper in 2019 when I believe I was still a first year PhD student, or maybe in the summer uh, when I was transitioning to second year PhD student. And um, so at the time, I was working with Eric Gilbert, Gilbert, professor at the School of Information at University of Michigan. I was also uh, collaborating uh, with Jill, Jill Diamond and uh, Melody, who are also co-authors on the paper. And we were really interested in the topic of redesigning social media by centering uh, marginalized populations' uh, voices and consent. And uh, in particular, I want to emphasize that uh, in 2019, uh, Jill introduced me to uh, Yuna Lee's uh, zine on building consentful tech. So Yuna already wrote a really incredible zine on um, uh, what, uh, what consent means for technology. And she coined the term consentful technologies. And we were really inspired by her zine. Uh, but at the time, unfortunately, when we look at uh, HCI, field of HCI, when we look at the papers in the field, we lacked a lot of those discourses around feminist perspectives on consent. So Tessa, as Tessa just mentioned, there were papers about um, private consent, majorly in the context of privacy, like consent pop-ups, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, we they were, 
I so as a first year PhD student, I was like eagerly looking for searching for papers on what does consent mean to social media design? Like what does consent mean in interpersonal interactions on social media? But I couldn't find any papers. So uh, uh, at the time, uh, my collaborators and I thought, oh, this is it. We should really write a paper about the importance of consent to especially feminist perspectives on consent and what that means for redesigning social media. So that's how the paper got started. So at the time in 2019, actually I was doing a very, I was constantly searching for papers um, in top tier conferences in HCI and related fields, trying to search for this kind of paper. So we were thinking, oh, there must be someone who have written this paper on feminist consent implications to technology design, um, especially social media design, but we couldn't find any. So that's when we thought, okay, we should write this paper. It's kind of amazing. I mean, sorry to interrupt. It's like, it's, it kind of, it's reminding me of our very first conversation Mm -hmm. in the series because it was all about politics of citation and just, it's sort of shocking that like a term could be used that widely in like all, I mean, we all have to consent to cookies like five times every day. And it's just wild that a term could be used that widely and it could just be lifted from its home location in women's studies and no one could ever bother to like contextualize it or research it until Mm -hmm. you and your co-authors brought that attention that -hmm. was so needed I agree I agree yeah and Jill in particular uh really I think taught me that discourse in HCI is so far behind um discourse in feminist studies um and well, interestingly, though, at the time, so when we, we started writing this paper in 2019, but I started seeing papers on feminist perspectives on consent from 2020. So I think it was like the time when, I guess, not just us, but other people, other researchers were also, I think, thinking about consent um, used, uh, from a feminist perspective. Well, it was yeah. the Me Too years, you know? Mm, so it makes that's sense true. that folks were... And Me Too, I mean, was viral here on Twitter, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I mean, kind of like a side or a parallel development. But And those were also mm-hmm. the, there was a resurgent Black Lives Matter movement in that time. So I guess it makes sense that there was that attention in that moment, even if it's surprising that there wasn't anything right before. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think, uh, and feel free to interrupt me anytime. I think when writing, when we uh, started writing this paper, I and of course other collaborators um, were really interested in the generative aspect of affirmative consent that you uh, mentioned in the introduction. So I would say we were more interested. So others, many other scholars have already uh, defined or discussed the definition of affirmative consent. So I would say the paper's contribution lies more in showcasing how affirmative consent is useful for social media design. So we were, mm-hmm. we, yeah, we wanted to derive what affirmative consent means because it had to be in the paper for the rest of the argument. But I think we we're more interested in the later part where we got, where we uh, use the five principles a voluntary, informed, revertible, specific, and unburdensome to really concretely demonstrate social media doesn't need to be designed this way. Because I would say even academic researchers are so used to what Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, are like. So um, I think yes. that's, the, yeah, that's the contribution I guess I'm most proud of, the, the table that you, yeah, that you mentioned. I'm obsessed with that table. Like, I think I told you when we first spoke months ago, but when I read this article, I literally printed it out, folded (laughs) it to that table, and just had it sitting on my desk. And it made me feel really proud that at Germ, Mm. we implemented some of those things, you know, before before I even met you or read this paper, Uh... because we were thinking consensually Mm. and we were thinking about women's, you know, experiences and not to, not to downplay like the contribution Mm. of your paper, but in some ways it's Mm. kind of like, it's like 
people leave design opportunities on the table when they Mm. don't think inclusively. I mean, I, when I talk about universal design, which is really from disability studies, I often Mm -hmm. talk about, there's like a famous kind of cartoon that's really illustrative where there's a bunch of kids outside and it's snowing and there's a kid in a wheelchair and he says, can you shovel the ramp? And the guy with the shovel is like, I'll shovel the stairs first and then I'll shovel the ramp. And the kid says, well, if you just shoveled the ramp first, we could all walk up together. Mm -hmm. Like everyone can use a ramp, but not Mm -hmm. everyone can use stairs. And I feel like that simple cartoon really illustrates that like when you think inclusively, you actually can think creatively and have new Mm. solutions. Like Mm -hmm. actually nobody needs stairs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Actually, you could have all sorts of interesting ramps. You could design the Guggenheim with the ramp going all the way to the top, but we're so just stuck in our sort of traditional ways of thinking and your paper's sort of proposed solutions really Mm. show how much there is Mm. like left on the table, you know, in terms of design. I'm thinking maybe you could summarize, if you don't mind, would you mind Mm -hmm. summarizing the paper for us a little bit more um, before we get into those solutions, just for folks that are listening, you know, that unlike me, don't have it printed on their desk. Oh, sure. Uh, Feel free to cut me off if you feel like um, I'm uh, dragging on and on. No, not at all. Um, We'd love to hear from you. Okay. So this paper is about introducing affirmative consent to social media design. Um, So in the context of the United States, affirmative consent was an important feminist movement to prevent sexual assaults. And in a sense, it means that someone must ask for and earn enthusiastic approval before interacting with another person. So it's a very opposite of uh, passive types of consent. So in in the first part of the uh, paper, uh, we derived what affirmative consent means um, from literature and feminist studies, uh, legal scholarship, HCI. So we defined affirmative consent as voluntary, informed, revertible, specific, and unburdensome. So for example, um, affirmative consent is specific, which means people should be able to consent to a particular action or person and not a series of actions or people. Uh, affirmative consent is also burdensome, which means the cost associated with giving consent uh, shouldn't be so high that a person gives in and says yes when they would rather say no. But as I uh, earlier mentioned, um, I think what's most interesting about this paper is uh, what does these five principles of affirmative consent mean for social media design? So in the paper, we make two arguments. One is that first, these five principles are explanatory. So they're, they're useful for explaining a wide range of problems on social media. I think uh, for some people, maybe not, it may not be that obvious, but I would say non-consensual images and all in harassment, I think, are problems that can be uh, easily, pro- probably easily explained by the lack of consent. But in the paper, we really wanted to demonstrate that some problems that may not be relate, at first glance, may not seem that related to consent can also be explained by uh, these five principles. For example, I think everyone had probably, probably experienced um, wanting to avoid some kind of content on their content feeds. Maybe it's a triggering content, maybe it's an ad uh, that's annoying. Um, And so in HCI, many people are working on algorithmic transparency, but in the paper, we argue that fundamentally, this issue is related to content feeds not being designed with voluntary aspect of consent in mind. So content feeds should ask users what they want to see and respect those choices. But the problem here is that platform companies are passively collecting data to infer what users want to see instead of directly asking users. So that's, and the re- <laughs> yeah. And the, I think the reason why we really wanted to include this uh, argument of the five principles being affirmative, uh, being explanatory is uh, because to show that these problems exist because social media is not designed with users' consent in mind. So maybe this is a too much of a bold statement, but I think there in academia, there are many researchers working on empirical studies uh, demonstrating that a lot of problems on social media exist. And these type of papers are very valuable because they really concretely show what the problems are. But I think in this paper, we kind of wanted to 
make a bold but fundamental argument that these wide range of problems exist because uh, social media are built by white men who don't really understand consent. And in the final part of the paper, we make uh, the last argument, and I think the most interesting uh, argument, that these five principles are generative. And so we were interested in this question, if you build a new social media grounded in feminist consent, what would it look like? So the co-authors and I, we conducted a design exercise where we applied the five principles of affirmative consent to seven common features of social platforms like messaging, profile, page, um, posting, commenting, etc. So we conducted a design exercise where we asked what would a voluntary messaging look like? What would an informed messaging look like? And we went on until we came up with about 30, 35 design ideas. And so one example I personally like the most is the revertible profile uh, page. So it's, uh, I think, uh, illustrated in the paper. But what it means is that currently, for instance, on Facebook or uh, also Twitter, when we post uh, information about ourselves, it, uh, it surmounts to a lot of information. And um, when we go through relationship changes, whether it's breaking up with a partner or a friend, um, it's very burdensome. It's very difficult to remove information about those uh, partners or friends or in the worst case scenarios, abusive, for instance, ex-partners. And so a revertible profile page would actually make it very easy for a user to uh, cleanly, uh, easily um, select the type of post or profile information um, and easily revert it easily delete those information and revert to uh, the past um, state. So that's an example I personally like a lot. So these uh, 30 to 35 design ideas, um, we were really hoping that when we wrote this paper, we were really hoping that it, could, it can be maybe picked up by academic researchers, but mostly industry practitioners. We were thinking about industry practitioners in mind a lot. Yeah. It's so awesome. And I think, you know, it reminds me of another conversation that we had this fall um, mm -hmm. where we talked about one of our weekly titles was products reflect business models. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I shared that personally, it was really understanding product business models that was almost the, I don't want to say last straw, that makes it sound negative. But like, one of the biggest sort of motivators that convinced me to found germ mm. because it was really understanding, you know, I don't think it's too bold to say that it's white male leadership that misunderstands consent. That's something <laughs> that we have talked about a lot, but I think mm -hmm. it's also the way that like whiteness and maleness is built into capitalism and the mm -hmm. way that the advertiser based model depends on continual growth, continual stickiness. And mm. what's sticky is, you know, folks networks and not just their networks, but like it's their, it's our attention that's constantly being played for, not the quality of our experience. So mm -hmm. the whole business model is not designed to give us the best experience possible. It's designed to give us the stickiest experience possible. And that's really like the opposite of consent, right? right like right. they never yeah. want us to say no. They never want us to unmatch with anyone. They never mm -hmm. want us to say, I don't actually want to see this or this feels like addictive. I don't even want to be watching this right now. Yet mm -hmm. my subconscious is like being triggered to keep watching this, right? When you were mm -hmm. talking about algorithms that we don't have a lot of control over, so there's a way that non-consensual thinking is really fundamental to these platform designs. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're thinking about design, it leads us back into business models as well, because we have to find other ways to for these platforms to make money and support themselves that mm -hmm. is not based on like an addictive, coercive model where we're just sort of stuck on our feeds like it was a gambling, you know, mm -hmm. slot machine or something. Right, um, right. So you're just reminding me of so many conversations that we've had this fall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And I yeah. want to I want to just share also for folks that are listening that maybe it didn't post. I tried to actually post that page from your paper on a response to our tweet. Maybe I will go check this out again and make sure that's it's there. Oh, maybe it's not there. Let me respond right now with it. I think I saw it, but maybe I don't you know did? where I saw it. Yeah, but you can post it again, I guess. I'm going to post it again. But yeah, to, now that there's a little bit of a lull in the conversation, yeah, it's uh, just from what you're saying, it's, and I guess this goes back to that conversation we had back when on platform designs stuff. It's just like, yeah, when I'm on like TikTok, when I'm on Instagram, when I'm on any of these social media platforms, like I'm like, I'm not, you know, it's just addictive because I'm just like swiping down or sorry, swiping up or just scrolling down, uh, trying to find it. Um, just trying to like, you know, because all these platforms are doing is they want your attention and that's how they're doing it is by like, you know, just, there is something addictive by just scrolling down and things like that. And I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily like think of it as consent, but um, there is like that, like it's definitely related to like having something like there's purposeful addiction Hmm. to, to that scrolling nature. And um, because it's like, Oh, I can't help it, but I'm just swiping down um, or swiping up from the, to the next video, even though I, should be getting going on work or I should be sleeping instead or you know even something as innocent as that um where usually like we think of like consent as like just from the proper term of like you know like a relationship or uh stuff like that but uh, but yeah in this context it, it can work for your social media stuff where you're um doing like the users are doing things that they don't want to do and yeah, I, I guess like to to pose a question here, uh, Jane. Um, so so this all makes sense, and this is great, or that you're you know you're researching this. Is there like techniques or strategies to prevent us from, or like to make platforms more consensual? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a big question. So there are several angles that I'm thinking about this. One is um, I started off thinking about interface design. So how do we design better interfaces that give users um, the correct information about what the platforms are doing? For instance, when we look at advertisement settings on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, um, the platforms deliberately uh, give misleading information or the default settings are, for instance, um, are set to be very public, or uh, the default is opt-in, and uh, which is which can which can be very misleading to users and don't meet their privacy expectations. So uh, interface design is definitely one angle that I'm thinking about. But another direction that I'm thinking about is actually business models that Tessa mentioned. So actually, when writing this chi- uh, this consent paper, uh, when I uh, asked for feedback from other academics, one common feedback or question uh, my co-authors and I received was, well, the design ideas are great, but how can such a social media exist when the common business model we have are ad-based business models? Like, the vision here in this paper is great, but I don't know how feasible it will be for people to actually build such a social media. So I think that kind of feedback got me really thinking about revenue models. So in, in this uh, new direction of work that I'm uh, working on, we're trying to, I guess, start off by understanding, I think the problem, one of the problems here is that the general public, so users, especially those who don't have knowledge about technology, they don't really know the extent of online behavior advertising. and how it's harmful to the society when social media are backed by ads. So uh, we're starting off by trying to understand how different kind of different groups of users perceive different kind of uh, revenue models of social media. And so in 
in this line of direction, I'm trying to uh, kind of reimagine how do, how do we design better revenue models for social media? Mm. So that's, yeah, that's another uh, recent research direction that I have in mind. I feel like this is a good opportunity for us to look more closely at this table that you have in your mm-hmm. paper. And for folks that are listening, um, I just tweeted this image out in response to, um, it should come up if you click the little kind of speech bubble yep. icon in the corner and then germ, uh, the germ account also retweeted it but so basically what you do and you mentioned this earlier but you and your co-authors have a bunch of common features in social media so you have dm and group chat you have profile friends and follow posting and commenting feeds tags and sharing and retweeting And then you have a matrix where you go through the five elements of affirmative consent, voluntary, informed, revertible, specific, and unburdensome. And you actually generate a suggestion for every single one. Mm -hmm. I think something that's really validating for us is that our design for our messenger, which is currently in prototype form, has Mm -hmm. all of them in the dm group chat line except for the unburdensome one Mm -hmm. although there's even things we don't do the classification but our app is double opt-in so users Mm -hmm. are asked if they want to join it's informed so you see like a snapshot of what's in the chat before you join a chat or you see someone's profile before you decide if you want to talk to them um revertible so you can the message read unread is interesting i mean i think of revertible in that one as just being able to leave the chat but i think Mm -hmm. that suggestion is also really good just in terms of usability you know like sometimes you want to leave something as unread so that you're you know reminded to respond to it later Mm -hmm. and then specific this is something that we've talked about as well like We want to have, maybe you want to have, you know, a status notification, but I only want my best friends to see when I'm online. I don't want Mm -hmm. my work colleagues to see all the time online. And then also unburdensome. You have classified DMs from strangers using sender's content and behavior. Mm -hmm. I think unburdensome is the column that I find somewhat the most interesting Mm -hmm. because you know we talk about and you see in tech the tech space like everyone talking about AI everything's AI AI it's the future (laughs) it's here but like no one is ever giving users the power to Mm. use AI to have more control over their own experience Mm mm-hmm Like, especially when you get down to the feed column, when you suggest that, you know, voluntary would be feed asks what users want to see today. Mm -hmm. Like, there's these powerful algorithms. We have so much machine learning and artificial intelligence. And yet it's always, and I'm just kind of thinking about this as we talk today, but like, it's always on this assumption of a non-consenting or a passive Mm -hmm. consumer And your framework of informed consent or affirmative consent is really about accepting that like we as consumers have agency and we want to use our agency and we want to talk back to the app and tell them like maybe how nice would it be when I logged into Facebook if I said I just want to see what my friends are posting today or Mm -hmm. I just want to look at news right now or I don't know what to make to dinner for dinner and just show me food right like allowing me to be agentive in my navigation of the app but I think your um this matrix that you've made really shows how passive we're expected to be and how Mm -hmm. it's always trying to make our experience quote unquote easier but also making us more passive and just like letting this content wash over us and I think You know, we have looked at research seeing that young adults are really shifting away from feeds and towards more internally focused communities. And I Mm. wonder if a lot of that is because 
there is a sense of disempowerment online. You know, one last thing I'll add is this really interesting article study that came out about Facebook users and Facebook users that were low digital literacy saw a lot more graphic violence and graphic sexual content in their Facebook feeds because they didn't know how to like toggle their settings or that Mm. those three little dots was like a place where you could actually kind of talk back to the algorithm and say, you know, if I thumbs up this, I'm going to see it more. If I thumbs down it, I'm going to see it less. Mm -hmm. So it's like these platforms designs really are not made to help us be more agentive. They really want us to be less agentive in a certain way. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, um, I have some thoughts that came to my uh, mind after uh, hearing you talk. So first is um, regarding your comment about how we have these powerful AI technologies, but users aren't given a chance to use them to, I guess, customize uh, their experiences to be more safer. I totally agree with that. So when, when my collaborators and I were writing this paper, we were constant, we were frequently talking about how little, like these little design changes really matter a lot. So we, we already have enough, I guess, technologies like AI, but what's really missing in current social media is these layers of small changes. Um, I think, so I would say this table, each cell, can kind of feel like a very small design change. But I think in the paper, what we really wanted to argue is that, sure, each cell might be a very small design change, but when we have these uh, layers of changes on various parts of the interface on social media, it can really create a big difference um, for the users. So your comment reminded me about the conversations I had with um, the collaborators. That's awesome. And for folks listening, because we have a couple people that have joined, um, we're talking about a specific table from Jane's paper that the germ account and myself have just posted as well. So you're welcome to look at it closely, more closely. If folks are interested, I do want to open the Mm -hmm. floor to everyone. And I just want to give a couple caveats first that we are recording this session and we're going to repost it as a podcast episode. So if you speak or ask a question, you are consenting to that. And of course, just to be respectful um, and we will we will we will kick you out if you're not but i don't anticipate that from anyone but i do want to open the floor you know if anyone wants to share reactions to the conversation that we've had so far or also ask jane any questions about this paper that she's written co-authored about affirmative consent and platform design i actually see a familiar face um in the audience so Sachin is a friend and also a PhD student at uh, Georgia Tech. I can see you joined. Um, oh, awesome. Welcome. Maybe one more question that I'll ask just to like stir it up. Has writing this paper changed how you use the platforms that you already use? Or is there like a fantasy that you have about something that you wish existed or a sensibility that you wish would be implemented either in a broad way or like in a specific platform that you use? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think after writing this paper, I become more private, I think on platforms like Instagram, Mm. I used to post, well, the account was private already, but um, I used to post uh, like images but now um, I actually removed all of the images and um, only use the stories. And so I, I think, yeah, I became more private. And uh, the fantasy, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I do, I do uh, periodically think about um, founding a new social media in Korea, my home country. Uh, I think uh, as a Korean, well, I guess as an international student, I think there's some aspects about social media in different cultures, they have like different kinds of vibes or interfaces. And I think combining that, my interest in culture, Korean culture and consent, I do kind of, yeah, think about, oh, what would a consentful Korean social media look like? So yeah, I think that would be my answer to your question about fantasy. 
Interesting. Yeah, when I was prepping tonight, I was thinking a lot about like a specific non-consensual design choice that I feel like has very negatively impacted my life. I've even like wrote, talked about it in the series already, but just the Mm. use of the spread of reels on Instagram. And there's this Mm. very specific like dark pattern that I feel like is the bane of my existence. But basically when you're scrolling through your Instagram feed, you used to be able to tap anywhere in an image to, um, mute or unmute it and Mm -hmm. now when you tap a video it opens up the reel and then it auto plays into the next reel and you know people have talked about this a little bit with because Instagram a lot of people have been complaining about Instagram's like imposition of reels and Instagram Mm. says well that's what the users want like we're seeing the usage numbers and people are watching videos, but I've seen several places and I really resonate with this in my own experience that like people don't actually want to be watching these videos. We're almost Mm -hmm. being tricked into them and then they autoplay. And then it's Mm -hmm. like this algorithm that is very addictive. So that has just been this one. Cause I find myself watching reels and I'm like, why am I here? Why am I watching this? Like, I literally did not go searching for this. I don't follow these people, but they really designed it to kind of foist it onto you. Mm-hmm. And it's feeling very non-consensual. Um, so I appreciate, yeah. like, your language for that. Yeah, I, I have the same experience with reels. Yeah, it's very, sure. very intrusive, very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will. I think it's interesting because I think Instagram took reels because TikTok has become popular in a similar way that like the stories that IG has were taken from Snapchat. Um, yes. Yeah, no, you, you bring up a good point, though. Just like, like if I want to watch these reels, like I'm just going to go on TikTok or watch something on YouTube. I'm not like going there on Instagram but it it also just I mean this is a slightly different conversation but it does remind me of like kind of like clash that Kylie Jenner mentioned a couple of months ago about how she uses Instagram like she doesn't like how Instagram is more geared towards videos oh yes Um, there was a whole viral meme of like make Instagram Instagram again yeah yeah or like you know she just wants to see video like photos of her friends again or even you know like I think we've kind of like accepted that stories are a thing of Instagram to the point that I like I forget what it was like back then before Instagram stories and I never even really use Snapchat so it's just it just like it doesn't seem that big of a deal but like the Instagram reels just make like it just seems like such a a pure copy of TikTok uh to me that yeah there is that element of like event like I feel like Instagram is just trying to compete with TikTok because they don't want TikTok to take over Instagram or like you know take over all the attention and it's I don't know if it's necessarily working because people are still on TikTok it's just you know it doesn't work the same way as what they did for stories Mm -hmm. it's it seems to me like that goes back to the the business model thing as well because these companies all have the same business model which is they're serving you ads and so basically if any of them innovate a new way to hold your attention and therefore get you to watch more ads the other ones are just going to copy it and I think every single platform really is ad based Mm -hmm. so they're all just copying they all are basically the same business even Mm -hmm. though they started out doing different things fundamentally they're all advertisement delivery businesses And so if anyone thinks of a new way that is very good at holding people's attention, like a story or like a reel, the other ones are just going to copy it. And so, I mean, it's so interesting to me, Jane, that Mm. that is where your research is going is into business models, because Mm -hmm. I'm 
of such a strong agreement. Um, I mean, maybe you can tell us more about that research if our other listener, you're totally welcome to ask a question or make a comment as well. But we've talked a lot about business models. And I Mm. think innovating the business models is so clutch because as long as the business models stay the same, the platforms just Mm -hmm. all revert towards each other. Yeah, I totally agree. I, to be honest, the, the research uh, is in the very early stages, so I don't have concrete uh, results to discuss, unfortunately. Yeah, but, um, or what are you noticing or what kind of threads are you starting to tug on? Well, I guess uh, so to give a, I think I got really interested in this direction because my uh, major in undergrad was actually I started off as a business major. Yeah, so it kind of feels like going back home or, or yeah kind of that feeling and I think in the long run I want to conduct measurement studies of um this would, of course I would have to collaborate with a new social media maybe germ but um I, I want to conduct yeah I want to conduct measurement studies where a social media let's say a starts off with a subscription-based um service and then let's say the the platform the company Found, found an ethical way to uh, showcase ads on the platform, but in an ethical way with uh, uh, showing high-quality ads. And um, I personally think there is a way to kind of uh, have ethical ads, but in a very careful way. I do think there is a possibility if it's done well, but let's say the, the company kind of uh, changes its revenue model. So I'll be particularly interested in kind of measuring how users behave on the platform as well as how they perceive the platform or maybe new new kinds of users will join the platform. So in the long long run, I want, I'm particularly interested in conducting measurement studies like that, but I'm not so sure how, and I'll, I'll probably have to graduate up first, but mm. that's one direction I'm interested in, yeah. That's so interesting because we do we do have ads in our roadmap, but it Mm -hmm. really is, you know, going back to this paper that we've been talking about, it really is about informed consent. Right. Right. right? right. And that, you know, you're consenting to what you're seeing and you're also, you know, you see ads because your data was shared with someone or someone was able to target you based on your data. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's about, consenting to see ads, consenting to share your data. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there's also, we think a lot about inclusivity and diversity. And so I think there's also interesting puzzles there around how can you implement business models that are not classist in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, oh, you can pay to not see ads, right? Mm -hmm, Oh, so mm -hmm. that would mean that just everyone with money has an ad-free experience and everyone who doesn't is seeing ads. So it's, I think the business model stuff is a really interesting, like, Mm -hmm. mental puzzle. And I Mm -hmm. do feel like there's so much value out there. We, We all spend so much money and platforms do have such gigantic margins. Mm. I think that's what gives me like the courage to pursue this and to mm-hmm, believe mm-hmm. that something else is possible because there are so many of us, we all spend so much money. Platforms are almost like pure profit once they're at scale So, Mm -hmm. like, we just need the courage to Mm. experiment. And I also see that Julie has requested to Mm. speak. So you are welcome to introduce yourself if you want to, but also just share um, your comment or your question. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm Julie. Um, I had a question just in general. Like, there are a lot of things that, like, people propose to creating, like, either, like, an ethical like ad business model or like ways that you want to make sure that like you keep the platform like like a diverse and inclusive space and like you can you I think I hear people talk about this sort of in like the setup and like what it could be but like how do you know that that it works like right how do you know that you're not creating a platform that's like descending into something that you don't want it to be yeah, that's that's a really great question. I think that's what uh, academics need to really think about because, um, yeah, I totally agree. I think a lot of academics are, and not just academics, I think 
everyone has a lot of opinions about social media design these days. But I think the, the really important thing here is that we really need to build new forms of social media like germ, actually um, experiment, like Tessa said. And I think in, as an academic, I guess, I think I personally think it's really important for these new social media uh, platforms and researchers to collaborate because I feel like research, academic researchers, I personally believe, can kind of bring in um, uh, insights on how to conduct research to have these findings um, be public and so that other researchers and builders can uh, use them to improve, continuously improve social media. So that's, I feel like, the really important direction. But unfortunately, academics are not incentivized to develop a, a gigantic social media from the ground up. So that's why I feel like collaboration between new social media and academic researchers are really important. Otherwise, I think it's just uh, academics will, maybe I'm being too pessimistic, but uh, if we don't have such kind of collaboration, I think academics will keep writing papers, arguing for, uh, make arguments, but we can't really validate them until unless we really build. Mm -hmm. I would say what comes to mind for me is just being now in the building space for a few years. Cause I did, Mm -hmm. you know, Julie, I did come from academia before and I kind of crossed over sort of for the exact reason that Jane, that you just spoke to the, the word that comes to mind is KPIs because in business, everyone's always talking about KPIs, which stands for key performance indicators. And when I'm talking about, even today, when I was in a pitch meeting, um, someone said, what are your KPIs that are going to distinguish you? Because Mm -hmm. really for most platforms, the KPIs are always around growth numbers and usage numbers. And it's just all about how many monthly, weekly, daily active users do you have and how fast is that number growing and how many minutes per day are they on the platform how many interactions do they have so there's all those kpis but i've been thinking about at germ can we ask users about satisfaction can we ask them about Mm -hmm. their trust in our platform can we measure the diversity of our user base and while protecting privacy can we correlate diversity with satisfaction for example Mm. and actually measure you know a lot of times they say don't ask questions you don't want to know the answer to and to Mm. go back to our conversation about Instagram reels you know it's easy for them to say oh our video numbers are up but if they had a pop-up survey that said how much are you enjoying reels (laughs) they might not want to know the answer you know so I think part of your question Julie is also about like measuring different things and actually asking your users different questions. And there's lots of ways to do that in a way that's privacy preserving, but it's generally like little pop-up, you know, survey bubbles within the app, or you could do focus groups, Mm -hmm. um, you know, interview users, et cetera. But like you have to do research And you have to actually want to find hard answers. And I think a lot of times these platforms, you know, this goes back to the the question of business models. Like the actual customers of platforms are advertisers. So they don't actually care if we're happy. They just care if we're there and if we're buying stuff. And so I think that's where business models need to be aligned around users and where direct to consumer business models are so important because if your users are your customers, then you do actually want to satisfy them. And you actually want to know if they're unsatisfied and what would they actually pay for. But when we're the ones being sold, like they don't actually care if we're happy or not. So why would they ever even ask us that? What? Maybe this is a kind of jump in topic, but I'm personally curious about your thoughts, Tessa, on some people have been proposing the idea of having social media as a public entity. So like, the, for instance, the gover- a government owns the social media. Yeah. yeah I, was, I was wondering what you thought about, yeah, that kind of possibility. I'm like theoretically into it, mm. but I don't really 
I don't really like trust our governments mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. actually make us, you know, something that they wouldn't take advantage of. I mean, mm. you know, I'm very invested in end to end encrypted messaging and like governments have been very hostile to that because governments are very used to, I mean, we just live in an era of governments wanting to know as much about their citizenry as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot about telephones <laughs> and how telephones are basically like a public-private partnership where mm. um, telephones or like your electricity or your gas, they're treated as a utility mm. and um, you pay, you pay, but there's some kind of arrangement where you know, you're not supposed, you're supposed to be charged in a responsible way to like support the cost of the service, but not, it's not like a full profit generating enterprise. Mm -hmm. In theory, Mm -hmm. I would love to have a digital identity that's connected to my real identity where I can get end to end encrypted messaging and have it be designed for privacy. Like, it doesn't have to be that fancy. It would be great if I could do all my business and file my taxes and text <laughs> about what about my public benefits, like all through a digital system. I mean, I could, if that was going to come up anywhere, I would see it coming up in like Europe or with Estonian mm. e-citizenship mm. or like connected with a digital identity. Mm. But I do think that just where our politics are at I don't really foresee that happening in any way. I think I've designed germ with like a desire for a public benefit. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. literally like incorporated as a public benefit corporation. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense of like the public good and public, you know, like just we're building for the public good and there's that public consciousness, but I don't see like a truly public utility being built with any type of privacy anywhere Mm -hmm. unfortunately i see i see okay thanks for sharing yeah i was personally curious uh, what What do you think about that i guess i'm uh i think i think it also sounds great in theory but yeah also kind of skeptical really yeah it really depends yeah so I would say to me, it sounds like, oh, it sounds really fancy and really nice in theory, but I'm not so sure if it can actually be implemented. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that in China, like I advised a student at Stanford who did a senior thesis on on Chinese social media during COVID. And he did this mm. close, this case study of Huawei And in China, you know, I think China really shows like the benefits and the drawbacks of such Mm -hmm. an approach because Mm -hmm. China has a very, you know, it's a communist country. So the state is very involved in the private sector. And so like on the positive side, there's a lot of like public investment money for the startup ecosystem. And the state is like a large minority shareholder of Huawei. So if Huawei had like a capital crisis or something, the state would invest money into it. And there's like a strong public support of the private sector. Like I know for me as a, you know, as a founder for Brett and I, like it would be great to have easy grant money to get germ off the ground to build in the public interest. And there is grant money in this country, but there's a lot more of it in China, for example. However, (laughs) on the other side of things, China does not have respect for privacy at all. There's basically a clean, you know, pipeline from Chinese platforms like a WeChat to the government. And so they're shaping what's being built in a way that gives China easy access to consumer data. And they basically have total access to consumer data, right? Like they're not incentivizing companies to build things that put a check on their own power. 
And so you can see it from both sides. Like there's a benefit to the startup ecosystem when there's rich public monies that are available for development for things that are for the public good. But if there's one public good that they're definitely not supporting, it's privacy. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. I did have a thought. There's like a city in Spain called Hoon. I don't know if it's still true but they did the opposite where they ran a lot of their like communications infrastructure over twitter so it's like if you needed somebody something you would like tweet like at whom fire department hey there's like a fire down the street and it's like a really interesting case study for like how government became like dependent on like a like an like a company right a corporation as opposed to like the uh, like a public good that is really interesting yeah, that's uh, that's also yeah. In the study that I'm 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 trying to run, I also included uh that scenario as well, where the government uh relies on a private company uh owning a social media. It's it's funny that we're talking about this because you know I'm very into community activism and politics, and it's sort of funny to me that I started a corporation Mm. I think it's kind of like a it's kind of an acknowledgement or it was a personal acknowledgement of like the failures of the public sphere to make products that are good for us and good for our lives and respect our boundaries as private citizens Mm -hmm. because I think I wish we lived in a world where there were like robust public digital tools, but we've just developed into such a society that is so like rapacious for our intimate information Mm -hmm. that it kind of was this sort of realization of like the public sphere is not going to build these tools, even though I think they could or maybe should but they're not going to. And so it's really up to us as like private citizens that care about the public Mm -hmm. to build tools that, I mean, that's why we did incorporate as a public benefit corporation. It puts like guardrails on the work of the profit motive in our company in terms of like what the board can do one day, what our shareholders can do one day. Like it's in our charter that, we have a mission to promote healthy communication. That's what we Mm. designed our public benefit as. And there's some more like language that is in all public benefit charters that it's just like, it's for the public good and not just for the profit of the shareholders. But it's really like a negotiation with these tools of capitalism, I think, to build things with a public consciousness. But it's like, it ends up being just up to the scruples of the company to like care about the public um, when really that is supposed to be a government's job, but I don't see them doing it certainly. And they're certainly not like setting trends or innovating at the forefront of any kind of digital technologies, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, thanks for sharing. That's super interesting to hear. Well, it's been a little more than an hour. Is there anything else that is kind of crossing folks' minds that they want to share, reflect on, ask each other, kind of like last call for the night? I guess I just want to uh, thank you again for inviting me. And I'm really super excited about Germ. I guess like one one last comment I want to make about the paper itself is that when we were writing, when we were making the table, it was like some of the design ideas were kind of straightforward, but there were definitely some cells in the table that it took me a while to think of any ideas. I, and I, I want to point out that I think it was difficult because I was so used to Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, etc. So like, for instance, the voluntary feed, I think that cell, it took up a long time to actually come up with that idea. Like now it seems very important, like applying voluntary actually coming up with the idea that, hey, why can't we ask instead? That took a while because I was also very used mm. to and Instagram, etc. word design. So, um, yeah, I'm really, I think, like this paper is very special, feels very special to me, but 
I think what's really important though is actually designing and building. Um, so I really look forward to how Germ evolves. Thank you. I mean, I wonder if you guys have ever done like workshop series, you know, like design workshops for designers that actually like use these principles to help folks generate new design solutions for like products that they're working on. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. I do. uh, I would say in 2020, I was interested in the idea of kind of making some kind of tool for designers and developers to come up with design ideas or how to uh, so I direction I'm getting a little bit of a warble from you. Did other folks yeah, get that? Yeah, I was about that? to say, yeah, I, you're in and out. You were oh. a little bit in and out, but yeah, okay, now I can hear you. Now we can. Sort of. But I feel yeah. like your audio quality might so be much. degrading, so maybe that's you cinderella's like fairy godmother turning you back into a pumpkin <laughs> for the night it's a cue. Yeah. Oh, okay my bad my bad no that's no, okay yeah i mean i feel like this table could have like a whole paper of its own like it's such a rich table and you could just talk through each cell in like so much detail um it really is like a gift to the design community so i'm glad that yep. we could talk about it a little bit tonight yeah. Well, let's wrap up. And Jane, thank you again for your time tonight. This session was recorded here on Twitter. So you can also, I think it saves it for 30 days and you can share it here on Twitter really easily. And then we're also going to edit it a bit and post it up to SoundCloud, hopefully sometime this month. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank nice you. Nice meeting you, Julie. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye. Yeah. Thank you. Nice meeting you as well. Yeah. Nice meeting you. Good night, everyone.